Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today is the last podcast of our 2010 season, and we're going out with a bang. Our guest is Andreas Schleicher, Senior Education Official at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Now, if you haven't heard of him, you've likely seen his research, the PISA rankings, that compare the educational abilities of children in the developed world. Last week, he released the most recent data that caught the eye of President Obama, as he said, seeing students so far behind many of their peers in Asia and Europe, this is our generation's Sputnik moment. We caught up with Andreas over the phone today from his home in Paris. So Andreas, last week you released the PISA rankings in Shanghai, China. We're leading the pack with a large number of Asian countries in the top 10. Why are these countries performing so well? I think it's very hard to generalize. Also keep in mind that some of the East Asian countries actually are not coming out that high. I think you find performance, large performance variation in Asia, in Europe, in North America. But if you do look at... uh, and these East Asian countries, particularly Shanghai, they get a few right. I mean, when you compare that with other countries, A, they generally place a very high value on education. Now, when you basically look what they sort of do, everybody knows what good education is. These are highly meritocratic societies. Sort of, it doesn't matter whom you know, it matters what you know, and there's no way for you to succeed in life unless you've passed sort of these high-stakes gateway education system. And that's something that students take to heart, teachers take to heart, parents take to heart. Sort of, I think that, that's one attribute, I think, that, that's very, very important in those education systems. Uh, and hard to emulate, right? because that's sort of almost sort of a cultural feature. I think uh, related to this is also the belief that all students can succeed. If you ask Europeans students why they don't do so well, they say it's heritage, a social background. If you ask Americans, it's luck. If you ask East Asians, they will consistently tell you it's hard work. You know, everybody believing you can succeed in Europe, for example, if you look at the European results, I mean, there are some some great performance, but uh, usually people believe that students have different destinations. They should be met with different expectations, and therefore those systems use selection stratification as a means to tailor opportunities to the to the kids. If you're not doing well in, in the academic track, they put you on a vocational track. And those kinds of things just don't exist in East Asian systems. So that's sort of one aspect. So, so it seems like culture and education are, are closely knit together. And looking at America, there was a slight improvement in the rankings, yet they're still not leading the pack. What, what explains the improvement, yet why aren't they leading the pack? Yeah, the improvements in the United States are slight. Uh, I think they can be explained by improvements at the bottom end of the distribution, which is really good news because that's been the tough part of it. Um, but I think the United States has a long way to go. I mean, again, when you compare this with the best performing systems, we've talked already about sort of clear, ambitious, universal expectations. Uh, that may be coming now with the Common Core. You know, I wouldn't underestimate the potential impact that the Common Core standards might have in the future 
on setting those kinds of high expectations. But, you know, that's just the first step. The, the, the next issue comes, how do you develop capacity at the point of delivery? How do you attract, develop, retain pitches? How do you get the best people into the profession? How do you get the most talented teachers into the most challenging classrooms? You know, and again, that's, that's something that Shanghai does really well. Uh, if the, the, the way they pair off schools, you know, high-performing and low-performing school, making sure that the low-performing school gets access to the talented teachers of the high-performing school and their principals, you know, uh, instructional leadership, another aspect, you know, where the United States probably has a long way to go, ensuring that you have school leaders who not just manage a building, but who are able to sort of build the kind of human capital, the great teaching force. I think that's sort of another important aspect, then you can talk about sort of incentives accountability. It's actually quite interesting when you look to Asia, but also to Northern Europe, perhaps to Canada, systems doing well often strike a different balance between what I call vertical and lateral accountability than the United States does. And the United States is a high emphasis on test-based accountability and very little in terms of lateral accountability, very little in terms of enabling teachers to see what the neighboring teacher does, enabling schools to see what the neighboring school achieves, and so on. So just sort of building this kind of knowledge-rich environment in which, in which teachers and schools collaborate. I think that's something, having effective knowledge management tools, information sharing devices, so those kind of things. I think we can actually show matter quite a bit, for example, <coughs> We can show with PISA that the mix between accountability and autonomy has a real impact on on outcomes, and that's an area where I think the United States probably can do quite a bit to get the balance right. I think uh, coherence as well. You know, if you look at the best performing systems, they have aligned all the policy levers across the system. They do things consistently over time, and they get people implementing policies consistently in school so it's a front line you know that yeah can you tell us a little bit about the actual test how has it changed who writes it what's on it and how is it administered fairly across the world yeah um the, the important point about the test is that it's not we're not that interested in testing whether students have learned what they have been taught sort of the reproduction of subject matter content is not the focus of PISA the focus of PISA is whether students can extrapolate from what they know and apply their knowledge in novel situations. So they're given a lot of tasks that are unfamiliar in context and where they have to integrate different fields of knowledge and so on. It's basically your capacity to creatively use and extrapolate from your existing knowledge. That's sort of the focus of PISA. Now, the administration of countries, that's basically a quite robust system that has been developed over the last 10 years. Schools are sampled in a random fashion across countries by some, according to some uh, established mechanism to ensure that the samples are fully representative. It's very strict exclusion criteria, sort of a very tough on ensuring that we get really universal coverage and don't exclude schools or students, uh, which often is an issue for the United States more so than for many other countries. And then on the administration part, we have uh, a protocol that's been implemented and the contractors who run uh, PISA in different countries follow that protocol very strictly. That's the mechanical side. The, the, the tougher issue is 
how you get sort of cross-cultural validity and comparability, no? that you make sure that you measure the same kind of traits across different cultures and countries and languages. And that's been a big investment on the part of PISA, but also now we have quite good empirical evidence that uh, those measures are actually quite well comparable. Some comes at an expense, you know, PISA doesn't, is not a multiple choice test, uh, but it's largely open-ended, so we've got to have train, trained coders who mark these things, and that's sort of quite an expensive process, but that's basically the price that, that countries have paid for getting comparable and reliable data. Right. Now, international rankings in reading, math, science, critical thinking gets a lot of the PISA attention, but the report is actually much broader looking at schools' resources, strategies, global equity. It's, it's several volumes. What is it about PISA that isn't getting as much media attention, but that we should be talking about? Yeah, you're quite right. You know, the, the, the ranking is just the surface. It's just the starting point. You know, you, the ranking you use to see where you want to look. But what is then important is to actually look how those systems that come out well actually achieve uh, um, their success. And, uh, you know, just to give you one number, I mean, uh, PISA can now account for 85% of the performance variation across schools around the world. So, you know, this is very, very I mean, there's a lot of, of neat and interesting substance in there in, in, in terms of understanding how schools differ. And uh, I actually think I'm quite sort of positive on this, that more and more media attention is devoted to trying to learn from high-performing systems and rather knowing who those are. But uh, I think there's a lot more that can be done. And, you know, we have just devoted one or five volumes to the, to the, to the ranking stuff because the interesting part really is in what you can do about it, the kind of policies and practices that relate to learning outcomes. That's where the real strength of PISA is, compared with previous assessments like, like TIMS that are more like a ranking. But I think the strength of PISA is sort of the idea behind it is triangulation. You know, nobody knows what's actually happening in classrooms. But if you get enough data from students, from parents, from teachers, from, from school principals, and from systems, then you can put those data together and intelligently triangulate. And that's sort of what we're trying Right, and that creates a certain preciseness in your data. Now, how much do these rankings play into a country's sense of nationalism or global competitiveness? Well, I think that's hard to sort of... I think many countries do take those data serious because they know that, you know, the preparedness of today's young people is the strength of your future economy in this globalized world where everything that can be digitized, automated, and outsourced can be done anyway, you know, human capital matters. And I think countries know that. But um, I think the, the idea then is more what can we learn from more successful systems than basically just coming up well in the rankings. You know, many countries actually, it's quite interesting actually, many countries got into PISA quite well knowing how they would come out, you know. If you are Brazil, you know you're not going to come out next to Shanghai. So still, they do this so that they can actually learn from systems that do better no? under similar circumstances. Right. Now, as someone who is keenly aware of all the forms of education across the world through a lot of your research, is there one practice or common ideal that seems to be universally successful across the globe? 
Yeah, you know, if you look actually at children from <coughs> socioeconomically advantaged backgrounds, they do almost the same, whether you educate them in the United States, in Shanghai, in, in Brazil, in Germany. Uh, I think what systems, what sets system apart is really how they are able to mobilize the talent of students from disadvantage. And uh, one thing that you do see is that systems successful with this are able to attract the best people into the teaching profession and the most talented teachers into the most challenging classrooms. Are there any trends or predictions for the next time you put out a report? It's hard to predict the future from the past. No, but what you can see is that there has been an enormous amount of movement. You know, one of the most sort of interesting findings from PISA is that some systems have quite significantly improved their overall performance. No? And uh, some have improved performance. They've also improved equity in the distribution of learning opportunities. Some have improved efficiency, and so I would expect that, I mean, what you see is that systems that really are serious about educational reform, they also do see results after some years. No? And uh, I would expect that sort of, you'll, you'll see a trend of systems that actually place a high value on education moving forward, whereas others may stagnate. No? That's sort of, you might see a bigger divide across the world that it's no longer, you know, in the past you could divide the world very neatly into the rich and well-educated populations and the poor and poorly educated populations. No? And, and that doesn't work anymore. You have basically now only 6% of the performance variability left explained by wealth. So that tells you 94% is about what you do. No? And I think that's what's increasingly going to make a difference. I think PISA is a great example of, of how assessment is working at an international level. Now, knowing that assessment works at an international level, do you see a future where a sort of universal curriculum can be imposed? I don't know. I don't think that something countries aspire to. I'm not sure. You know, for me, I see assessment not as, not as creating sort of standardization, but rather as helping us see our differences, you know. Um, it's like if, if we all work in isolation, we don't know how we are different. These kind of assessments allow us to see our relative strengths and weaknesses. They see, for example, I mean, you see, for example, in the United States that what you teach is maybe different from what is being taught in Japan. That doesn't mean that you should teach what is taught in Japan, but the knowledge of those differences together with their consequences can be a very powerful sort of background for curriculum reform. So I don't think people will necessarily necessarily emulate each other in terms of curriculum, but they will, by knowing better what is happening across the world, it's more informed. You know, curriculum, if you look at curriculum today, much of what you do in school is basically an outcome of tradition, doing things that way we've always done it, um, something of, 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 of belief, you know, people believe that certain ways of teaching mathematics are good ways of teaching mathematics. And, and you know, this international comparison, provide a broader perspective. You can basically second guess some of those cultural assumptions. And that's all. I don't think that I have not seen any trends so far of basically people striving for standardization in those kinds of processes. And tell me a little bit about how you would maybe measure something that's more intangible, say like leadership abilities across the board. 
Absolutely. I think that's where much of the future is. I think all our assessments are still focused on cognitive skills. I mean, leadership is a great example. I think um, one of the things we're currently working on is dynamic problem solving, uh, collaborative problem solving. Now, in, in, in the real world, you, I mean, uh, knowledge that is stacked up somewhere is depreciating very rapidly in value. The way you create sort of value is by linking your knowledge to the knowledge of other people, sort of collaborative skills. Now, and getting those measured in a reliable way is, I think, a huge challenge for the future. But I think also a test of truth. If we don't succeed with that, then people will legitimately question the value of the test. Andreas, thank you so much for your time. This is the last question now. What was your favorite school subject when you were a little boy, and did they offer statistics in your kindergarten? Uh, in my kindergarten, no. Uh, <laughs> there were no statistics. My favorite school subject, you know, I, I must tell you honestly, I actually enjoyed most of what I did in school. I had changed in school subjects, uh, uh, and actually I finished my school with the top mark in, every, in all 12 subjects. So I can't say that I had a single one that I did most. I, and in my school, I did... Um, I put a lot of emphasis on language and literature, and then when I went to university, I studied physics, so it was a bit, I, I, I probably, it was more of a teacher that mattered to me than the subject I was studying. Uh, and, and what was it about the teacher that, that resonated with you? I don't know. I've, I've been very fortunate. My teachers, you know, basically invested a lot in me. I learned a lot, and I, I not just in the, in the subject I was taught, but... Uh, personally, I think that's been probably more important to me than the particular subject that I was taking. Uh, Andreas, thank you so much, and we're really lucky to have you producing so much great data for the global educational sphere. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. And that was the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We're off for a few weeks now, but look forward to kicking off a great 2011 podcast season. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Happy holidays, happy new year, and thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.